Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists about the creative process of making music. Today's episode features composer and musicologist Michael Dodds, who will be featured in a new documentary about his 40-minute symphony. In our talk, Michael explains how Baroque composers are like jazz musicians, and how music theory is strangely linked to the history of map making. First, some announcements. This episode is brought to you by my lovely Patreon patrons and by Lynda.com. Lynda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on demand video courses to help you improve your creative, technical, and business skills. For a free 10 day trial, go to Lynda.com quest, and that's Lynda with a Y. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Thanks to Retward von Dernberg, a composer in Berlin who studied at UCLA with James Newton Howard, Alan Silvestri, and Hans Zimmer. Check out Retward's music at retward.com. That's spelled R-E-T-T-W-A-R-D. Thanks also to Braxton Burks, who just became a patron this morning. You're hearing his music from the video game Bacon Man. You can hear more of Braxton's music at soundcloud.com slash braxton dash burks. And that's spelled B-U-R-K-S. Contributing at the $3 per episode level is RJ Salvador. Thanks, RJ. Since you're into Baroque music, and since this episode has a lot of Baroque talk, here's a jingle vaguely inspired by that era. Let us all strum a chord on guitar for RJ Salvador. Now let's get on to my interview with Baroque specialist Michael Dodds. I have to warn you that the audio in this one is fairly low quality, but the conversation is high quality, so I hope you enjoy our talk. Uh, it's pretty cool. They are making a documentary about you. Crazy. Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled. It's a, it's a huge honor. How did that come about? Well, the way that came about is that a couple years ago, I was commissioned to write a symphony. And this filmmaker friend who I had grown up with in Peru, she heard about the symphony and offered to come down and shoot the performance. They were asking me questions about the piece and how I wrote it. And they had the idea then and there to make a documentary about this. So the documentary is partly an exploration of the piece its meaning and its compositional process, and partly an exploration of my own development as a musician and a composer. That's cool. It's called Blessed Unrest. Uh, That title, actually, Blessed Unrest, comes from a famous quotation by Martha Graham, and she's talking about the creative process, and Blessed Unrest describes that state of, you know, being eternally dissatisfied, and yet it's such a blessed state to, to be creating something. So that's, that's where the title of the film comes from, and it fits the DNA of the symphony perfectly, because the, the symphony also has this sort of feeling of 
blessed unrest to it. Yeah. I was listening to it as I was biking yesterday. Oh, um, wow. And it was, <laughs> it, your yeah, your symphony is really beautifully orchestrated and has just perfect soundtrack to going through nature. kind of images did you have in mind as you were composing it you know it's funny because the music very much was inspired by some of the places where i was composing and the text of the choral symphony is actually psalm 145 which is one of the most joyful psalms in the bible and in the first movement there's this line your greatness no one can fathom and that idea of fathoming jumped out at me because at that moment I was on vacation at the beach in Wilmington, North Carolina. I was walking up and down the beach and I was just, you know, kind of letting the music come to me. And, and so that first movement, very much inspired by the beach at Wilmington. And in the trailer of Blessed Unrest, the opening shot is actually me standing in the surf composing, which seems ridiculously romantic. And yet it's actually true. Like that's actually how I start the compositional process. The second movement is a meditative pastoral, and I actually wrote that movement up at a friend's tobacco shed up near Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, in the rolling Piedmont of North Carolina. It's just beautiful pasture land, and that's really the ethos of that movement. third movement is called Mountains, and it's really about the highs and lows of human experience. And I've been privileged to spend a few summers in the French Alps, helping my mom with a project. And the grandeur of the mountains was something I really wanted to portray. I'm always curious about how composers structure large pieces like that. Yeah, that's, that's something I had to give a lot of really careful thought to. The first movement is in a sort of sonata form, but not strictly. The second movement's a big ABA. The third movement's a, a rondo. The last movement's a huge fugal finale. I mostly allowed the text to dictate where the music wanted to go. 
And then in a few cases, I used cyclic returns. Cyclic returns, is that, uh, that just means bringing something back from... Yeah, it means the piece kind of comes full circle. So, some, you know, the 39, 38, 39-minute piece, and somewhere around the 36-minute mark, the first movement music that reflects the, the sea comes back. Then it's actually combined with the music from the last movement, so that the two, the sort of a mashup of the two themes is kind of an exciting moment. It gives a very satisfying feeling of coming full circle. Yeah, I, I noticed as I was listening to that part that instinctively I knew the end was coming at that point. And I was just... The end is near. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're trying to signal the end is coming, what are some musical things you would do? Yeah, well, a couple things. The last movement specifically is a fugue. And, you know, that's, that's kind of an, an anachronistic genre these days. You know, nobody writes fugues anymore. But I was drawn to writing a fugue because I've always been a counterpoint nerd. So it's a double fugue. It's got two subjects. One that goes with my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Another subject goes with the word, let every creature praise his holy name. And then I do all this other crazy contrapuntal stuff and augmentation and diminution and strettos. But one of the things that signals that the end is coming is there's this big, really big chromatic crunch and a big dominant chord. And then it sets up kind of a recap where both fugues are presented at the same time. Hearing that intensification of both themes together sort of clues you in that, okay, we're moving towards climax here. And then what really does it is when the C music comes back and the main fugue subject and the C music get mashed up together, it creates a degree of complexity and chromatic intensification and textual intensification and that's a lot louder, and the orchestration becomes very full. There's no mistaking that, okay, something big is about to happen. The other thing was that I did in this piece was that 
this symphony was actually composed for a worship service. So there was a crowd full of people. And what I did at the very end was invite the congregation to sing on the final statement of the fugue subject over a big pedal point. And the organ enters at that point. The organ's been silent for the whole symphony. And then at that moment, the organ comes in and the roof really blows off and everybody sings. Well, that's cool because I don't think outside a church setting, there would be a chance for the audience members to sing along with the piece. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. but you know, it's funny because it's gotten me kind of interested in doing that in, in a secular concert setting now because I was like, man, if you can do this in church, why couldn't you do this uh, in a concert hall? Yeah. And in general, I'm interested in sort of blurring the lines between what's vocal music and what's instrumental music, using voices more instrumentally, using instruments more vocally, and blurring the line between what's the audience and what's the performer. Yeah. It was interesting reading about how you went through kind of a crisis uh, where you didn't think you would be able to do anything new with your composition and kind of turned you off from composing for a while. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a few things. First of all, I've had a very unusual and interesting life story. I grew up in the Peruvian Amazon. My parents were medical missionaries taking care of indigenous people out in the jungle. So I grew up in the jungle, and the jungle has very much been a part of my inner sound world, although you might not know it from the piece. Um, when I was in high school, I played in the Lima National Symphony and went to Interlochen up, up in the States and had a great time. But when I was in high school, like a lot of kids, I experienced uh, a serious trauma that kind of, uh, it was both musical and personal, and it really kind of separated head and heart. So I went on for training as a violinist at Wheaton College, Illinois, and then uh, went on for my doctorate at the Eastern School in Musicology. Um, continued to develop all of my technical skills, but I was really living in my head. You know, I was really interested in serial techniques, and I love set theory, and I've always been fascinated about catonicism. But it's just kind of interesting, as, I, as I've matured as a person, as I've grown as a person, it's kind of like head and heart have finally started getting back in touch with each other so that I can use my intellect and my, my craft that I've developed over many, many years in the service of expressive aims. And this piece was kind of a breakthrough for me because even though I've been composing miniatures all my life, when this commission came through, everything just kind of lined up. And it was funny, actually. I, I was at the National Gallery of Art. I, I love going there. My wife and I have been going there every year for the last 30 years or so. And there's this amazing portrait of Rembrandt that has been hanging there all this time. And every year I pass by it, I appreciate it. But the summer I was finishing the symphony, I walked past this portrait of, of Rembrandt and I was just arrested by this master artist and his incredibly piercing eyes. And for the next half hour, I just kind of got interrogated by, by Rembrandt. It was a, <laughs> a very weird out-of-body experience. And basically Rembrandt asked me the question, are you being true to your art? And I didn't really know where this question was coming from. But as I thought about it more and more, what I realized what it meant for me at that moment 
was, am I allowing head to serve heart and not the other way around? Because I've always lived in my head. And now as a composer, I was really being called to write music for a community of people I love. You know, I know and love the people in the choir. I know and love the members of the orchestra. I'm friends with, you know, half the symphony orchestra. And I wanted to write music that they would just have a good time doing. So I, that was helpful for me because as a musicologist, I kind of know too much. You know, I studied everybody else's music. I've read lots of music criticism. I know how vicious music critics can be and other composers of other composers. And that just shut me down. So I just said, to heck with it. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm just going to write what I want to hear on that day. That was very freeing for me. I didn't worry about being original. But in the end, I feel like the voice that emerged was mostly my own. So I felt pretty good about it. Yeah, that's always tough when you are doing a piece of music that you're constantly thinking about what other people think of it. it just cripples you. Yeah. You know, D David Maslanka was uh, here. I, I teach at the UNC School of the Arts, and I'm the musicologist there, but I also, for four years, conducted the wind ensemble. And I had David Maslanka, the wonderful wind ensemble composer. He came in and did a residency because I was conducting his fourth symphony. One of the things he told me and also repeated to the students there was that once he realized that the only person he had to please was himself, suddenly everything got a lot easier. And you only write music that you want to hear. And for me, it means not really caring. Uh, of course, I care what the musicians think and what the audience thinks, but you can't do it to please someone else. You have to really invite other people into your own creative imaginative space otherwise what's the point yeah you've been studying a lot about the baroque era right mm -hmm. and uh, i was kind of curious what you think about how baroque composers approached composing yeah this is something that i've studied in a lot of depth in my work as a musicologist i deal a lot with how musicians think about total space, and I think a lot about how composers in the Baroque learned to compose counterpoint and how they actually did it. One of the first things is that for most Baroque composers, counterpoint was not a pen and paper exercise. It was something that took place at the keyboard in real time. You know, we think of Fuchs's Gratis Head Parnassum as homework that you do at a desk with a pencil. And it was more like, you know, playing a video game where, you know, you have to keep up with the dots that they come across and make sure that the dot that you're providing against that dot creates an appropriate voice leading. So counterpoint was deeply rooted in improvisational practice. And what that means is that Baroque musicians, especially continual players, had a deep awareness of basic voice leading patterns that were not unlike jazz riffs that jazz musicians use to construct a piece. So once you start recognizing these, once you're familiar with these, you begin to realize that the art of creating a contrapuntal fabric is not so much the art of generating something from nothing as it is combining modules that you know are going to work. 
it's funny because the last movement of my symphony, you know, it's a, it's a huge nine minute fugue, but I, I actually improvised a lot of it in the car with my son. My son, Owen is a sophomore at college and he, he and I improvised vocal canons in the car, um, using techniques that I've learned from friends and from Renaissance music theory treatises. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but it's like really not that hard to do if you know how to do it. it it's a skill, but it's not as difficult as it might sound. So I guess that's one of the things I've realized is, you know, even looking at the dense counterpoint of Bach, Bach was able to do what he did partly because he had a deep understanding of improvisational strategies that once you know them, it's pretty easy to generate that musical fabric. Yeah, and he didn't have to sit and think about it because he could do what like five part fugues improvised yeah. yeah absolutely nuts yeah but he was famous for his ability to do that and you know that i've been familiar with that story that cpe bach tells about bach how bach would sit down and improvise or how when he and cpe would go to a concert and the organist would start a fugue you know, Bach would nudge his son and say, ah, you know, I, I told you so. I knew he was going to do such and such or encounter such and such a problem based on what the subject was. And I thought, oh, that's just because Bach is a genius. But no, it's not because Bach is just a genius. Yeah, he's a genius. He can do it better than anybody. But it also comes from deep familiarity with shapes. Um, I think of counterpoint very spatially. You know, I think for Baroque counterpoint composers, it's kind of like playing Tetris. That's huh. about how you combine this shape with that shape. Cool. <laughs> when do you think it started changing over from these composers improvising and doing things on the fly to doing more like sitting at a desk writing notes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I have a friend who thinks that uh, Johann Joseph Fuchs was the person who ruined counterpoint instruction, which is ironic. Uh, there's this great famous treatise called Gratis ad Parnassum, which translated from Latin means stairway to heaven, <laughs> that uh, is by Johann Joseph Fuchs, who was, lived in the early 18th century, during the time of Bach. And Haydn used this to learn to compose. He used Fuchs to teach himself to compose. And later, Haydn used Fuchs to teach Beethoven how to compose. And that was about the point where counterpoint went from being something that you learned at the keyboard to being something that you wrote on paper. Fuchs' exercises are not real, live plain chants. They're made-up cantus fermi. So they're kind of clinical. They're very controlled, and they're very, you know, they're all the same length. They don't have all the weird things that real, live plain chants have. So that was really taking it out of the realm of actual music making and making it more about the exercise. Hmm. Do you think something like that would ever happen with jazz in the future? Or like something where people are improvising now and in, in the future people will study it as like... That's already what happened. That's already... I mean, I'm not deeply knowledgeable about jazz, but that's already the way it is. You know, people take a Dave Brubeck solo and for their master's thesis, they'll transcribe it. Oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's the way jazz musicians learn is you listen to the jazz masters and you take that lick and you learn to play it in 12 different keys and you absorb it into your improvisational language. 
so I think that the analogy with jazz is really apt because I think Baroque composers were not so much creating things from nothing as they were practicing the art of combination. And the art of combination is very much what jazz musicians do. That said, you know, there really is a place for an individual voice. Uh, you know, I, I don't write Baroque music. I just happen to write a few using Baroque techniques. A lot of the other music in this piece is inspired by my sort of engagement with the past and with other composers. For example, Alfred Mann is the author of a book called The Study of Fugue, and I, I studied counterpoint with him. I was very close to him. Uh, he was like a grandfather to me, and I dedicated the last movement to his memory. Well, Alfred Mann, when he was a young GI, uh, he was German, but he was Jewish, so he came to America, got drafted in the army, went back to Germany as a U.S. soldier, and happened to be in Garmisch when the war ended. Garmisch is where Richard Strauss lived at the time. So for six months, Alfred spent a few hours a day with the greatest living romantic composer. Hmm. So I sort of think of myself as a grand student of, of Richard Strauss. <laughs> and so the, the third movement of my piece has a number of Strauss references um, to the Alpine Symphony in particular, which I just happened to have on the brain a lot as I was composing this. Hmm. I've always loved the kinds of contrapuntal cascades that you get at the endings of pieces by Josquin and Palestrina and, and Bird. And so I use those a lot in the mountain movement to sort of reflect the waterfalls of the Alps. I call them cascades. So for me, those are musical cascades equivalent to the beautiful waterfalls in the what were some techniques that Richard Strauss used that um, you you kind of gleaned from him? There were a few specific chromatic chord progressions that I was, they just sort of jumped out at me and grabbed me. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to rip that off and recontextualize that within the language of my piece. And Strauss's handling of extended harmonic areas is really inspiring to me and in general his use of chromaticism. So it, it really had to do with the harmonic language that I was most interested. Also with Strauss, to some extent, his orchestration you know, my, the orchestration for my piece is not as big as what he would write for. I was writing for pretty much double wins. So pretty big orchestra, but not triple wins like Strauss would typically have. Um, that said, trying to really exploit the color contrast that uh, you find in a lot of Strauss's tone poems. Time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. If you're a sheet music composer like me, Chances are you use either Sibelius or Finale. They're both kind of daunting to learn, but Linda has an in-depth course on each of them. 
I'm just starting in on the finale one, and so far it seems amazing. I've taught myself finale over the years, and if I had just taken this course, I think I would have saved hours and hours and hours of time searching for help. I just learned a cool new trick from this course, the smart find and paint command. Basically it's like a find and replace function where you single out a phrase and it finds all the rhythmically similar phrases in your piece. Then you can choose to copy the slurs, articulations, and other things to any instances of that phrase. Pretty cool. So even if you think you're a master at Finale or Sibelius, there's probably more to learn, and it's worth checking out these Linda courses. You can get a free 10-day trial by going to lynda.com slash quest. That's L-Y-N-D-A. It'll also help support the show if the lynda.com folks see that I'm sending traffic their way. So thank you. Now, let's get back to my interview with Michael Dodds. How has your experience as a conductor affected your composing? Very much. Um, Several years ago, my school underwent a big budget cut due to the national recession. And we lost all our adjuncts, and suddenly I found myself uh, doing the work of three other people. I was asked to conduct the wind ensemble because I had a lot of conducting experience, but I did not at that point have a lot of experience specifically with winds and brass. So I immediately called Donald Hunsberger, who I had worked with at Eastman, and he encouraged me to go ahead and take this gig. And I was so thrilled that I did because what it did was it gave me daily working exposure to winds and brass, you know, this, this color and this register and this dynamic. And, you know, so as a conductor, I was being also exposed to lots of wonderful music by young wind ensemble composers. So I just learned a tremendous amount. The other thing then is when I actually went to conduct this piece in performance, I was very grateful that I had fairly solid conducting chops to be able to do that. Uh, I found it quite necessary to separate myself as composer from myself as conductor. And the only bad moment, uh, the only unpleasant moment for me in the entire process of creating a symphony was the first rehearsal because I finished composing the piece Saturday night at 5 p.m. And for the next 48 hours, I worked almost nonstop generating the orchestra parts. (laughs) (laughs) You know, to have them ready in time for the 7 p.m. Monday rehearsal. Uh, I go into the Monday rehearsal feeling nervous because I haven't adequately proofed the parts. So the conductor in me was mad at the parts preparer for only finishing all the parts, you know, two hours before. And the parts preparer in me was mad at the composer for not having finished the piece until 48 hours before the first rehearsal. (laughs) And the composer was nervous as heck because uh, I was worried that there might be mistakes in the parts. And amazingly, uh, because I'd been very careful all along the way, I think there was one wrong note in the oboe and the trumpet and bassoon parts somehow finale dropped a rehearsal letter. But otherwise, it actually all went fine. But as a conductor, I had to forget that I was the composer of the piece and approach the piece, you know, the way that a conductor approaches it, you know, what beat needs what cue and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I saw something about uh, 
you've studied how music theory and cartography are connected, like map making. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what was that all about? I am really interested in the relationship between the mapping of musical space and the mapping of geographical space. There are very deep parallels between them. So, for example, if you think about how you can map musical space, when you map musical space, if you go back to the Guido Torrezzo, the medieval music theorist, you basically think of a musical scale as the musical notes as being a, a scale. The Latin word for scale is gradus, literally a stair step. It goes up or down. And the pictures that you see in a lot of the medieval treatises use exactly that to describe what's called the gamut. And people navigate that using the solfege syllables, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, all that. Okay, so, but what happens is when you get to the Baroque era, people no longer are conceptualizing the notes that exist in terms of the human voice. They're increasingly doing so in terms of the keyboard. And once you get to the keyboard, you have sort of this repeating octave, where the octave is the same. So music theorists starting in the early 17th century start to use circles to describe total space. And then composers get very interested in what are called circulating temperaments. A circulating temperament is a way of tuning the keyboard that allows you to play all the way around the circle of fifths. So equal temperament is a circulating temperament. But if you go back to the 16th century... Most organs were tuned in some variety of mean tone tuning, which does not allow you to do that. You're basically on a curved earth, but not a round earth. So you go too far in the direction of the sharps or too far in the direction of the flats. It becomes unusably out of tune. So uh, the development of temperament systems that allow you to play around the circle of fifths, which preeminently occurs in the 17th century, has a parallel in what's going on in cartography. In cartography, Mercator's development of his maps, uh, which occurs right around the same time that circulating temperament is developed, achieved breakthroughs in cartography navigation. In the case of Mercator's maps, it was what's called azimuth, or compass direction. You know, if you draw a line from London to Paris, and you follow that compass heading, you would get from point A to point B just by following that compass direction. Previously, maps didn't do that, and that solution was an intuitive solution. It wasn't mathematically backed up yet because they didn't have decimal points or logarithms yet. So once the decimal point was invented and logarithms were developed, a guy named White was able to come along and quantify Mercator's projection. So what goes on in the history of musical temperament is similar to that. Once you've got decimal points and logarithms, you can start to mathematically generate circulating temperaments in a way that previously was done only intuitively or by using sort of a geometric method of calculation. So it's an interesting thing. If you look at music theory treatises from this period, you actually start to get all of these really cool circular graphs showing the relationship of keys. Some of them actually have a wheel inside it that shows how you can transpose a major triad or a minor triad onto any of the white or black notes of the piano, or how you can transpose do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do onto any of the black or white notes of the piano. 
But this is kind of like circumnavigating the globe. It's a completely different way of thinking about total space. Hmm. Cool. So you've studied a lot about how other composers compose. What has been the most helpful for you as a composer? Like any sort of advice? I think the most important thing is to show up. You just have to show up. You know, you, you set a time and you're at your desk at that time. And you just keep beating your head against the wall until it comes. I mean, it's nice and romantic to have what I call dream time, you know, where you're walking in the surf or walking in the pastures and letting the music come to you. But that's just the first one or two or three percent of the compositional process. Then you have to capture what you write down. And that requires just really good oral skills, a really good knowledge of harmony and counterpoint. Another thing is that I think it's really helpful to access your musical creativity, or at least for me, it's helpful to access it in as many ways as I can. So just opening up my imagination is one way. I can sing. I play the violin. I play the, vi I play the piano. I will improvise with the organ. All of these different ways of relating to notes kind of shake loose different aspects of creativity. So... I think it's important to keep those switched up and to sometimes be accessing my oral imagination. Sometimes it's more you know, cold, hard calculation. For me, orchestration, the later stages of orchestration tend to be like that. It's not, there's nothing remotely emotional about it. It's just cold, hard calculation and lots of guessing. And sometimes it's important you know, to really be in touch with your feelings about something. It just depends sort of where you are in the process. Sure. Do you have a favorite musical mode or uh, chord? No, uh, a favorite musical mode or chord. Um, not especially. Um, there is a chord that I feature a lot in the symphony that's sort of an altered French sixth. It's, I think, a E flat G A D. French six would be E flat G A C sharp, but this has a D, and as a result, it's got quite a pungent dissonance between the E flat and the D. I feature that chord at a number of places in the symphony, just because I think it's a kind of a delicious dissonance. I use a lot of major, major seven chords, um, and that just kind of adds a certain sheen to the sound. As a violinist, what tips do you have for composers? on writing violin parts? Well, I think one thing is to maybe spend a little, if you don't play the violin, spend a little bit of time with the violin, just getting familiar with things. As a composer, I'm very interested in writing things that are strongly idiomatic. Uh, the same passage written 
two slightly different ways might have almost no appreciable difference in sound, but have a huge difference in the amount of time you're asking your musicians to put into it (laughs) in order to achieve that. So I think it's really important to understand the lay of the land of the instrument, particularly with things like taking advantage of sort of the sweet spot of the instrument, um, how you place a melody on this or that string, certainly the possibilities inherent with double stopping and, and the special bow techniques. In general, with any instrument, I think it's really helpful to, to do score study while listening and really hear how does that note sound in that register on that string. I'm interested in writing music that instrumentalists are going to want to play and that singers are going to want to sing. You know, I'm not interested in being difficult for the sake of being difficult. And I've seen a lot of that, and I'm just not interested in, in doing that myself. Yeah. We have a question chain going on the podcast where the last guest asks you a question. Um, so my last guest, Lisa Wacos Minglesio, was wondering... What would be the ideal environment for you to be creative? You know, I think that if I had my ideal creative environment, it would have the right balance of solitude and musical sociability. I would compose every day from, you know, eight to two or three in the afternoon with a nap in there somewhere. And then in the late afternoon and the evening, conduct an ensemble. For me, controlling the means of production is a tremendous stimulus to composition. So to be able to have an ensemble, whether it's an orchestra or a choir or both, where I can introduce my own music and where I can try things out, hear it like Haydn was able to do in Esterhaza, for example, or Strauss could do with his various orchestras, or Mahler could do with the Vienna or New York Philharmonics. Um, that is just a huge privilege. And I, I think that's my ideal. Yeah, that sounds great. I noticed something in another interview of yours where you you said you have a TV set up to be um, portrait, like on its side, for when you're doing actual scoring on your computer. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> yeah, actually, at all three of my offices, my, my school office, my church office and my home office, I will take a big computer screen and flip it vertically because if you're editing a orchestral score, it's really nice to be able to see the whole thing at once. So that's worked really well for me. It took a little doing to get my IT department to be willing to uh, you know, spring for the special mount that you can flip. <laughs> but you know, then I just plug my laptop into it and it works great for me. Yeah. Uh, Well, do you have a question for my next guest? Mm, Let me think. This this might be kind of a personal question for your next guest, but if you had one day to compose a piece of music that was to be performed by, let's say, a half a dozen of the most important people in your life, whether they're musicians or not, who would those people be and what would the piece of music be like? 
Wow. That's, that's a good question. Have you thought about this before? No, never. Yourself? Oh, <laughs> well, okay. actually, I kind of have, uh, but not framed exactly the same way because, you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot in composing this piece. Um, when I wrote my symphony on Formula 45, the tenor is a very good friend of mine. The mezzo is a good friend of mine. The soprano is a, is a dear friend of mine. I know the people in the choir, you know, they're all amateur singers. And I wanted to write music for them that either they would enjoy singing or for the professional singers among them. I know certain sweet spots in their voice and I just really wanted to hear that sound. And it's so amazingly wonderful to be able to write music for someone and then hear them render it back. I don't know. It's like, it's special. It's part of being alive. It's, it's wonderful. In fact, in the performance, the premiere performance of my symphony, my daughter and my wife also sang in the performance. And, uh, it was very special to see the video and to see my daughter there. She was 11 at the time. So yeah, I have thought about that. You know, if life was an opera, what would the characters be singing? <laughs> Who would they be and what would they be singing? <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. Your Kickstarter for the documentary is going on right now. Um, yep. So people should check that out. That's going till yeah. when exactly? I think it's June 15th. And the filmmakers will kill me if, if I don't emphasize that <laughs> <laughs> in this interview that, you know, that we should send listeners to go check it out. So if anybody's interested in seeing the trailer for the film, they just have to go to kickstarter.com and search for the title, which is Blessed Unrest. And the filmmakers are trying to raise a whopping $68,000 to cover their post-production, which of course is actually just a small fraction of the cost of the film, much of which they've borne themselves. It's just right. really a labor of love for them. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show here. My pleasure. It's been really nice chatting with you, Charlie. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Michael Dodds. Again, to support his documentary, just search for Blessed Unrest on Kickstarter. Our question of the week is, what instrument do you play, and what tips do you have for other composers writing for that instrument? Chime in at forum.composerquest.com. Now time for episode 3 of All My Musical Children, the soap opera based on the musical mating game at darwintunes.org. Last week we mated two musical loops together to create this ugly little brat. Now our child has grown up and on the prowl for a new loop to mate with. Let's hear what potential candidates there are out there. Here's a loop from a Composer Quest listener who tried playing the game, Dan Wheeler, aka Yoda. 
Sorry though, Dan, I had to pass on yours because I wanted to mate our loop with a polar opposite loop just to see what would happen. I chose this loop from the user Little Twilight. Here's what their eight musical babies sounded like. If these loops were somehow represented as actual babies, I think they'd probably have five eyes and be covered in green slime. They also probably wouldn't grow up to be in a soap opera. But that's the nature of all my musical children. You never know what's going to happen. I ended up choosing Child 4, which reminded me of the Simpsons theme. And it's in one of my favorite musical modes, Lydian. Will our little loop one day find a beautiful mate to make beautiful babies with? Tune in next week for All My Musical Children.